I'd like to encourage you to take out your scripture and turn to the book of Haggai. It's on page 1468 of the Blue Pew Bible. We're getting to the last quarter of our series in the Minor Prophets, taking each of the Minor Prophets and preaching an expositional sermon on the whole book. I hope it's been fruitful for you. I know that it's been uh, incredibly fruitful for me in my life uh, and challenging as well. I'm, and I'm thankful to the elders who literally, well, they didn't make me do this, but it was... Uh, it was something that I kept saying, really? Are you sure? That's not going to be easy. And so I, I thank them for continuing to encourage this series. Coleman Mockler, I don't know if you've heard that name, is considered a model for the, the um, current CEO being an effective uh, CEO. He's a Harvard Business School graduate. With an MBA, he had gone to work for Gillette Corporation and steadily worked his way up the ladder. Under his management as CEO, Coleman took the company to new heights. Perhaps you've heard of one of the stadiums that he helped build. I won't mention any teams. They came to dominate the market. Gillette did. Not the Patriots, although that is true too, but... Uh, Gillette came to dominate the market, and after 16 years as a CEO, Coleman was at the top of his game. Forbes magazine had just put him on the cover, and they'd sent him a preview of it about a week before it was to hit the newsstands in 1991, January of that year. As he walked through the hallways of Gillette headquarters, he was met with applause from different rooms for his accomplishments and making it onto the cover of Forbes magazine. With his staff still applauding, Coleman walked down the hall, he stepped into his office, shut the door, and then died of a massive heart attack. When they found him in his office, he was still clutching Forbes magazine with his picture on it. The question that I want to pose for us as we enter Haggai's world is, what is it that you are clutching onto, that you are holding onto? As I said earlier, maybe in a clearer fashion, what idol or idols are you holding onto? Every person has one thing or several things in their life that they look to for meaning, purpose, and value. What is it that you are clutching onto for meaning in life, for purpose in life, for value in life? Every person clutches something, actually, another way to think about it, you're clutching something that, that dictates your priorities. What's that one thing? What is it for you? For the believer, this is a crucial question. Because whatever it is that you're clutching that drives the priorities of your life will affect how you hear the word of God. 
And that's what we find in Haggai's first prophecy. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 1. God's word says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. This is what the Lord says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord to build the house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you yourselves to be, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but have harvested little. You have eaten, but never had enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, I turned out to be, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with his own house, therefore, because you have the heaven, because of that, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields of the mountains and on the grain and new wine and oil. And wherever the ground produces, produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Pausing there for a second, uh, the excellent commentator Frank Gablin wrote about Haggai: the truth that this, the the truth that is, few prophets have succeeded in packing into such a brief compass so much spiritual common sense as Haggai, and that is true. As I studied this, it was so hard to, to push things out in order to get to the, to the center of this. There's so much that could be said. Haggai here was inspired throughout these two chapters to preach four prophecies to God's people over the course of about four months, August through December. Each of these contains a spiritual challenge for us today. And what God asks in each of those is give careful thought to each of these in your own life. And the first is give careful thought to your comfort. Give careful thought to your comfort level. The context of Haggai's entire prophecy is to encourage the people that have returned from exile in Babylon to rebuild his temple. That's the context of Haggai. His purpose for speaking to God's people is to encourage them, rebuild the temple. We're about 80 to 100 years after Habakkuk preached. We're in the year 520 B.C. Since Habakkuk, Judah whom Habakkuk preached to, Judah has been taken away into the 70-year Babylonian exile. 
And the Jews were devastated when that happened. But through the prophet Jeremiah, you can read in Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter to the Jews to encourage them. Even though they've been taken away into exile, he writes a letter, a beautiful letter in Jeremiah 29. And he writes to the Jews and he says, listen, settle down in Babylon. Pray for Babylon. As a matter of fact, work for the good of Babylon. Settle down. Take you know, sons and daughters as your wives. He's encouraging them. But then, and that's what they did. God's people bloomed where they were planted. But they forgot about the second half of Jeremiah's letter. Jeremiah was comforting them and saying, it's okay. In the second half of that letter, and you know these, these portion of Jeremiah's letter so well, he says, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come for you and my gracious promises will be fulfilled to bring you back to this place, Judah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Familiar? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. To give you a hope and a future. That's what he was saying. He's saying, okay, settle down there, but then when 70 years are up, you'll be released, come back, and I'm going to prosper you here. So in 538, God began to make good on that promise. The Persians under Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, and you know that very well. The writing on the wall, remember that in in Daniel 5? That's when the Persians came in and conquered Babylon. And he allowed, Cyrus allowed the people to go home. He gave a dispensation. He said, everybody who wants to go home, go home. But many of God's people... He did Jeremiah's advice in his letter too much. They settled down and got comfortable there. And when God released his people from captivity, out of the million people that went into captivity, only about 50,000 came back. Of the 24 orders of priests, only four returned. And of the thousands of Levites, we know that only 74 of them returned. Those that came back quickly rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. You'd have Nehemiah there. And then they, they rebuilt the foundation of the temple and the altar and then stopped. They stopped building because of opposition, probably. They stopped building. And it sat in that fashion, the foundation and the altar, for about 14 years. And they would come once a month and they would make a sacrifice for the people and go home, come do make a sacrifice for the people once a month. But it was just the foundation and the altar. And in 622, Darius rose to power and encouraged the rebuilding of the temple. He actually encouraged, he actually gave money to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem so that they could start and rebuild again. And instead of excitement, instead of, oh, this is great, we have all this money, we have all this permission to rebuild this, nothing happened. They didn't rebuild. They didn't come together. They didn't pick up where they left off. And that's where Haggai comes in. In verse 2, 
He says, these people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house, i.e. the temple, to be built. They're saying, it's not time yet. I know we have this permission from Darius, and and I know we have the money, but it's not time yet. You see, the Jews were falling back into a familiar sin towards God and his priorities. Comfort-born apathy. They were so comfortable, they said, why do we want to go to all this trouble? Why do we want to... Invite trouble. We know the Samaritans aren't you know, thrilled that we're here to begin with. Why do we want to start doing something and draw attention to ourselves? Their comfort is what they were clutching onto. And that's what we see in verse 4. It's time for you yourselves. Is it time? The Lord is asking. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the temple remains in ruin? See, they had a comfortable living while God's house was in shambles. What they were saying is, it's not a convenient time for us to restore the temple. When opposition and hindrances to restoration of the temple cease and demands of life are met, then we will start doing the Lord's work. They were comfortable. They had comfortable lives. They would have have to sacrifice their time, their talents, maybe even some of their treasure, to rebuild the house and potentially, as I said, aggravate their neighbors. Willem van German, professor emeritus of Trinity Divinity School, said this, they were preoccupied with making a living, improving their standard of living, and rationalizing their adversity. Sound familiar? It's exactly what we do when we read scripture that challenges an area of our life, isn't it? Well, hold on. I don't know if it's time yet. I'll do it when it's convenient. I'll do it when when life's other demands are satisfied. That's when I'll do the Lord's work. Or when hindrances cease in my life. Certainly don't want to aggravate our neighbors. That's exactly the way the Jews were thinking 2,500 years ago. They were saying to God, not yet. James Boyce, in his commentary, says, excuses are a clue to underlying guilt. Isn't that the truth? When we say those things, it should be a clue for us. Like, I believe in missions. I do. I believe in missions. But with the economy the way it is, maybe we shouldn't expand our missions budget. Or I believe in missions, but, but you know, I, I, I can't go myself on those short-term mission trips. Not yet. Or I believe I should share my faith. But you know what? I don't have a relationship with that person. I can't share my faith without a relationship. Or I'd get into trouble in my workplace if I shared my faith. Or I don't know enough answers if they question my faith. I know I should tithe, but I have so many other family obligations. I have so many trips I want to take. I have so many vacations. Or I am so flattered that you asked me to serve in the church, but I don't have time right now. Perhaps next year. Perhaps when life slows down a little bit. Perhaps when I retire. 
In other words, we're constantly saying, not yet, God. Not yet. And to all those, God says, give careful thought to your ways. Think about what you're saying. Twice he says it in verses 5 and 7. Five times in the whole book of Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. Think about what you're doing. And the way to defeat the not yet response is found in verse 12. It says there, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. There's the key. That's the key. This should sound really familiar to those of you who have sat in Sunday school in the last year. We did a whole series on fear of God, fear of man. The answer to the not yet, it's not convenient, is to fear God. Like to clutch onto Jesus and not the other things you're clutching onto. I remember that fear of God, as we, as we defined it, was knowing how loving and merciful and graceful and kind and caring God is, yet at the same time remembering how fearful and mighty and powerful God is. That's fear of God. As C.S. Lewis wrote to Susan's question about Aslan being safe, you probably have heard this, she asked Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's fear of God right there. Remember that the person you're saying no to has heaven at his throne and the earth as his footstool. Isaiah 66. Remember, the one you're saying not yet to said to the waters here and no further in Job 38. Remember the one that you're saying you don't fit, uh, that you're saying it's not convenient for me right now, stood in the earth, shook, looked, and made the nations tremble, Habakkuk 3. Remember the one you're saying it's not convenient for me right now, graciously fit himself into our schedule by becoming man. That's what we're celebrating this whole month. He became man with all its, his temptations, accepting, accepting, and, and that this is what's so amazing about Galatians 4, he accepted being put under his own law. He accepted being hung on a tree. He accepted our punishment. And he gave us his righteousness. He inconvenienced himself for our account. Can we really say it's not convenient for me right now? 
And the Jews understood that. And what's amazing about Haggai's prophecy is it's one of, one of the few in scripture that we see a prophet actually preaching and the people reacting in a godly way. They started rebuilding the temple. They actually heard and they feared God and they started rebuilding the temple. But then another roadblock arose. And that roadblock is discouragement. Look at me at chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But it does not, but now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. The people actually began building the temple again. But then apparently there were some among them who maybe had seen Solomon's temple, the one that was brought to the ground by the Babylonians, who had, who had seen the glory of that temple, or even remembered it, told stories about it, and the people began to be discouraged because they were building this temple, they were bringing these, the cedar down and building this like anemic structure. And people were sitting there and going, boy, it's just not like what it was. This is not a great temple. I mean, look at the little spindly timbers we have. Where are the great stones? Solomon's temple was was overlaid with gold. It, It shone like the sun when it hit it. It said that that over 140 pounds of silver, of gold, were in the Holy of Holies alone. That's billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of gold. And here these people are standing back and looking at this temple and going, it doesn't look like much. And so discouragement set in. Enthusiasm dampened. Work slowed down. People showed up late or not at all. Instead of joy in doing the work of the Lord, it started to become drudgery. And boy, we've seen this played out in the life of the church over and over and over again, haven't we? When a ministry isn't quite what it used to be, when things begin to contract instead of expand. I mean, I think of, I I was just thinking in my office this week, what would happen if over the next three or four years, the youth ministry that, you know, 35 kids are coming out each Wednesday night, mostly who don't know the Lord and are hearing the gospel every week, praise God for Anna preaching the gospel. What about if next year it's 22? The year after that, it's 13. And what about the year after that, if it's eight? Boy, the enthusiasm starts to wane, doesn't it? It begins to feel like drudgery. Oh, Wednesday night's coming again. There's only eight of them. 
What about Christian education? Instead of expanding classrooms and having to look for places where we can educate these children in the gospel and the love of God and the glory of Christ, what about if we start having, boy, there's extra classrooms, there's classrooms that are dark on Sunday morning. And getting teachers, if you think it's hard now, becomes drudgery. Praise God, we live in a time of exciting growth in the life of this church, by God's grace. But would the enthusiasm for this church and this ministry still be there if we started contracting? If whole sections only had one or two people in it? There might be generations to come in this church that look back at this time as the salad years. Many people do that with their own church. I'm involved in in a couple ministries where we're reaching out to, to what we're coining slowly dying churches. We're trying to reinvigorate them with the gospel. And these, the number one problem, I would say, that, that most dying churches have is looking back over their shoulder at the heyday. They just hang on to the heyday. They don't have anything before them now that's really enthusiastic, but they'll look back. Well, that's what's happened to God's people as they look at this anemic structure in front of them that they're building And they looked back at the glory of Solomon's temple and they began to become discouraged and their work became drudgery. And so Yahweh says to them, give careful thought to what you're doing. Pause for a second. Give careful thought to your discouragement. And in verse 4, he encourages them to remember to be strong and to work. And before I leave it there, He says, remember, I am with you. You can't miss that. If you stop reading it, be strong, oh Joshua, be strong, oh Zerubbabel, be strong, remnant, and work. If you stop there, that's terrible spiritual advice. I like what James Boyce says about this. It is the presence of God that makes people strong. In ourselves, We are not strong. This is why God does not say, go on, I know you can do it, just be strong, do your best. Doesn't that sound like the world? That advice might be helpful at a football rally or if you're about to participate in a talent show, he says, but it's of no value spiritually because we're not equal to the task. That's the point he's making. The world's philosophy is to pump us up. You're you're okay, self-esteem. You can do it. You're good enough. Those words aren't helpful spiritually at all. The spiritual key to overcoming any discouragement is actually realizing that we're not up to the task. But I can tell you that the truth of this in my own life, and those of you who, who work in ministry, you can understand this. Because when you start to try and think that you can do it under your own power, under your own intellect, under your own gifts, 
I can do this thing. You get crushed by it because you're not up to the task. That's the lesson that Paul needed a lifetime to understand. He was a uber-gifted man of God. That's why God chose him. But I think he struggled with this. Because in, in 2 Corinthians 12, you realize that he's been struggling with this thorn in the flesh. We have no idea what it is. But it, he prayed three times and the Lord said, no, I'm not taking this away. You know why? Because you need that kind of humility. You need to realize that you're not sufficient. You need something in your life to realize that you can't do it, Paul, without me. In your weakness, Paul, my strength comes out. Because that's what we're tempted to do when something goes well, isn't it? To give lip service to God and say, oh yeah, yeah, God was with me, but... (laughs) Who was really there with the feet on the ground? It was me. Only then will you actually start depending on God. So he says, lead in weakness. But secondly, he encourages them to not only realize that he is with them, that that you're not up to the task. He also encourages them to give careful thought beyond what they can see. You see, they're looking at this, this spindly structure and going, oh, it's terrible. But through Haggai... Listen to what the vision that God gives his people. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once, again, once more shake the heavens and the earth, sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desires, desired of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord saying, don't worry about all that. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Let me tell you, we know from history that this temple that they were building was never greater than the Solomonic Temple. It never was. So what's going on here? Haggai is saying, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this temple is going to be glorious, more glorious. I think what's going on here is this is a great messianic prophecy that he's giving them. See, the purpose of every temple ever built was to establish a place where sin could be forgiven. That was the the purpose of the temple where bodies could be broken, where blood could be spilt, where people could come and seek to be right with God, be in a right relationship with God. That was the purpose of the temple. It was not so important that the structure be perfect, God is saying, but that your understanding of the temple is. I need your understanding of the temple to be perfect. That's what he's doing through Haggai. And you make this connection so clearly in John's gospel in the second chapter. When he's challenged, he goes and he clears the temple and, and the officials come to him and say, hey, listen, what, by what authority are you doing this? You know, show us something. 
that, that proves, gives your credentials. You know what credentials he gives them? You remember? He looks at around, and I think, and this is extra scriptural, this is extra scriptural, I think he looks at the temple and he pats his own body and he says, tear down this temple and in three days again, I'll rebuild it. They, of course, did not know that and were told in John's gospel that only after the resurrection did they, the light go on. Oh, he meant his body. Everybody's looking at the temple, the Herod's temple, and going, how's he going to do that? Jesus makes it clear what Haggai is foretelling. Jesus is the greater glory. Jesus is the true temple where you come and seek forgiveness. Jesus is the temple's fulfillment where you come to be right with God. Jesus is the place where you make your Romans 5 peace with God. Haggai is saying, it's not so important what the structure looks like, but it's all important that you get what the structure is pointing to. It's going to be greater glory. And that's the key. That you understand that you can't do it on your own, that you need help, that you need a savior. And that's the point of the last two prophecies given on this same day. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body, if he touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever, and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Pause here. Here is Yahweh is challenging his people to give careful thought to their salvation. Give careful thought to their salvation. See, the people in Haggai's generation figured because they were rebuilding the temple, that that made them holy. Look, I'm working for God. I must be okay. So Haggai reminds him that holiness doesn't work that way by asking two questions. If something is ritually clean and touches something unclean, does it make that object that it touched clean? And the priests say, no, of course not. And then to prove his point, he says the reverse. If something is unclean and it touches something clean, what happens to that thing it touches? And they go, it's unclean. What he's trying to do is teach a principle here that they need to hear. Cleanliness is not physically transferable, yet uncleanliness is. Just because they were working on the temple, something clean, that did not make them right with God. It's just not that simple. 
So God says to them, give careful thought to this, guys. Think about this for a second. Righteousness is not communicable. Think about that. Let me illustrate. There are many, perhaps, perhaps, some even in this room, who, if you use your EE, the evangelism explosion questions that um, D. James Kennedy came up with in the 70s, one of those questions was, if you were to go stand before God at his pearly gates and he asked you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you answer? I attend a church every week. I came to church cleanups and the hanging of the greens. I came to fellowship dinners and I even helped clean up after the fellowship dinners. I took communion every time it was offered. I served on missions or hospitality or CE. Why should I let you into my heaven? I worked in your kingdom. Do you know what God would say to you? Away, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. Because righteousness is not something that you can catch. It's not catchy like a cold. If you hang around the church long enough, you become righteous. If you build, build the, the temple, if you take time to build the temple, guys, you're not going to become righteous that way. Jesus, when he was confronted with this by the religious leaders, he said this to them, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then the outside will become clean. It's inside out, not outside in. That's how it works with the gospel. You don't catch it by hanging around righteous people or hanging around the church or rebuilding the second temple. The only thing that can change a heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We said this in church last week as a, as a group, Romans 1.16. I want to ask you before I read it, do you believe it? Because Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power of God. The gospel has the power to change your heart. Nathan Cole, a Connecticut farmer in the 1740s, described his conversion to Christ after he had heard George Whitfield preach. And this is what he said. Hearing the good news of Jesus gave me a heart wound. Isn't that beautiful? By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw my righteousness would not save me. Inside out. 
See, the power of the gospel as is it gives you a heart wound. That's what the gospel does, guys. Gives you a heart wound. Makes you realize your own righteousness or the ritual that you surround yourself with. There's a lot of ritual in Christianity that can make you feel really good. I have a, a dear friend who is being attracted back into the Catholic Church, and he loves it because of the ritual. And I go, oh. It's not the ritual. It's the relationship. Salvation is not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. A.B. Simpson is reported to have said that the gospel, and this is great, tells rebellious men that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner is canceled. The curse of the law blotted out. The gates of hell closed. The portals of heaven opened wide. The power of sin subdued. The guilty conscience healed. The broken heart comforted. The sorrow and misery of the fall undone. And I would add one thing to A.B. Simpson's wonderful list. That you are God's prized possession. And that's what verse 23 tells us. As he's encouraging Zerubbabel through a prophecy, it says, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will make you my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. He calls Zerubbabel his signet ring. A signet ring was worn by a king, and it was his source of authority. He put it on his finger or hung it around his neck. And that was his most prized possession. God is encouraging us to give careful thought to your value. Last, your value. I won't take much time on this. If the gospel has powerfully broken through in your heart, if you have a heart wound, God wants you to know right here and now, that you are valuable to him. That you are his signet ring. That he cares for you. Isaiah 43, 4 says, You are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. We just talked about this in Sunday school, how we have to tell each other we love each other. Why do we tell each other that? Because we, God tells us all the time he loves us. I love you, I love you, I love you. I'll leave you with what John Blanchard wrote. As God sweeps his eye over the unspeakable glories of heaven, the vast array of galactic space, the intricate beauty of planet Earth, and the marvelous intricacies of submicroscopic creation, he can find nothing more precious in his sight than a redeemed sinner. You're precious in his sight. You're valuable. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, now we, I implore you to give each of us a heart wound as we've heard the gospel. Plow up the ground again in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.